Um, Malachi is the last speaking prophet uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, when his prophecy closes, there will be 400 years until God speaks through prophets again. Uh, in biblical studies, it's often called the 400 silent years. Uh, it's, they're not really silent. Stuff still happened. There was a lot of history. There was a lot going on. But um, there were no prophets. The next prophet that will speak will be John, John the Baptist. In fact, John the Baptist is prophesied in Malachi. Um, maybe not my name, but I'm pretty sure that's who he was talking about. To prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. So Malachi ministered the same time as Nehemiah. Uh, around 430 BC, again, 400 years before Christ, um, Israel has existed as a nation at this point for about a thousand years. Uh, they've been through the dark ages of the judges. They've been through the monarchy of David, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. They've survived the divided monarchy where there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Um, <clears throat> they, they, well, they didn't survive. Uh, Assyria came and carried off the northern kingdom, never to be seen again, uh, can cease to exist. Uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, spent 70 years in exile. And then under Cyrus, they came back into the land and rebuilt the temple and, and rebuilt things. Um, and so now, after several decades back in their homeland... Wait, after, just a second, Chris. Does this sound familiar? Yes. Please. Okay, good. You've <laughs> <laughs> been beating it into their heads? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Scary moment. <laughs> we don't know what he's talking about. Um, so, 70 years of exile, uh, Judah comes back, and uh, several decades have passed now since they've been back in the land. And uh, believe it or not, Israel is slipping back into corruption and apathy once again. No way. No. Say it's not so. Um, and really, I, I think... I mean, Scripture doesn't say this, but in my mind, Malachi is one last attempt to get Israel to turn back to God. And then it's as if God has finally run out of patience and says, okay, fine, I'm going to leave you alone for 400 years because the next act I'm going to do will be Jesus, the Messiah. Because no king has been good enough, no, nothing has worked, I've punished you, I've sent you into exile, nothing has worked, nothing has worked, nothing has worked, so I'm done. Um, and so this, the book of Malachi, is God's last word to Israel before he shuts up for 400 years. Aren't you dying to know what it is he would say when he closes the book for 400 years? Wouldn't, isn't, doesn't that just, I mean, what is God going to say to end it all? Anybody curious? <laughs> what issues will he address? What will be his message? Um, so let's turn to Malachi 1. And this is where we're going tonight. Uh, first, I'm, we're going to see two foundational truths out of the book. Uh, you might call this the doctrinal basis for what we're doing here. And then we're going to see Malachi apply those two foundational truths in two areas of life. And the two areas of life that he applies them are family relationships and money. Probably two of the most difficult areas of life. Family relationships and money. Interesting. So let's look at the two foundational truths. Um, the first one is that God loves us and that doesn't change. Uh, look at chapter 1, verses 
2 and 3. I have loved you, says Yahweh, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And then if you flip over to 3, 6. For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Judah, Jacob, are not consumed. So we see here that the, the reality is that God loves his people with an incredible, unconditional, passionate, covenant love that does not change. God chose Israel to be his people. He didn't choose Esau. And it sounds like you've been grilling them on Old Testament history. So Esau was the father of what people? Edomites. The Edomites. He didn't choose the Edomites. He chose the Israelites. Um, and that's what it means. I love Jacob, but I've Esau had hated. Um, <clears throat> and he loves his people with an unconditional, passionate, unchangeable love. Uh, Israel are no longer his people in the covenant sense of the word. Uh, we, the church, are his covenant people now, the new covenant, under the new covenant. And so he loves us with that same unchangeable, covenant, passionate love. By the way, if you have questions as we're going along, I'm going to pause a few places here and there for some discussion and so on. But if you have a question, like, wait, 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 hold, stop, stop, kind of like Jared did, uh, feel free to just raise your hand or say something and, and you're uh, no problem. The second foundational truth is this. Following Jesus demands everything. In a parenthesis, we are clueless as to what that means. Following Jesus demands everything. And we are clueless to what that means. Uh, 3.18 is one of the key theme verses in the book. Uh, it's, the, it's the verse I gave Jared to stick on your social media. Um, I want to read it. And it, it indicates what Malachi is trying to do in this passage. So 3.18 says this. Then once more you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And so this is all talking about the distinction between a person who follows God and a person who doesn't follow God. And there better be a distinction, because if there isn't, then you're not following God. Um, and so he's telling us how to tell the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between genuine followers of God and those that might think they are, but really aren't. Um, Malachi's message is to a people that didn't get it and were clueless. They were clueless to their own lack of passion for God. And I think the message is, is scary because um, if you're clueless, you won't know it, right? Because you're clueless. And so we've really got to be discerning and listen to this. So look at 1.6. Let me read 1.6 and, and take a look at this. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? See, see your clues. God says, you know, there's this problem. And you say, well, how have we despised your name? We don't get it. Um, so God answers by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? We don't get it. We're clueless. Again, they were numb to their own apathy here. 
They had strayed so far from genuine, passionate love for God that when he says, look what you're doing, you're violating my laws and my principles and my truths, they said, I don't, I, we don't understand, we don't see that. How have we polluted you? Verse 7. By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? I have no, jumped out of 10b, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Wow. So basically what they're doing is they're giving their second best, they're giving their leftovers, they're giving their rejects to God. And God's saying, your governor wouldn't even take this stuff. You're, you're giving more and better to the government than you are to me. And uh, you're, God's getting the leftovers and the scraps, and they didn't even recognize it for what it was. Um, it was half-hearted, self-serving worship. Um, I just, I just think about this. Do we, give, do we give more and better to our employers, to our government? Uh, do we pay more taxes than we do give money to God's work? Um, are we giving our second best to God and we give our best to everything else? Uh, it's something to think about. Look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, because Malachi is going to slam him on this, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. You see that? I'm going to make my name great. If you're not going to do it, we're going to do it some other way. Um, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Think about this. This is what God's saying to, to these people. You guys, you're just, you're just so tired of me telling you to give me your best. You snort at it. Um, what a weariness this is. Oh, God, you're asking us to come through again and give you our best. Oh, this is, this is an indictment. This is awful. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the chief who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Now let me ask us, how do you think we get tired of giving God our how, what does that look like? How is it that we give God our leftovers? Sometimes, look, I'm not a night person, so nighttime's not a good time for me. And But if I get busy just doing other things in the day, then I think, okay, God, I'll just spend time with you tonight. Which for me, that's leftovers. That's leftovers. Um, and so... So we would, just to follow up on that, we would, the tendency can be to give our best time to work or a project 
and give God our second best time. Good. What else? Maybe spending a little bit too much time on social media Think about the amount of time you spend reading the Word versus checking Facebook. Yeah, it's like I have a passing, I've got a passing moment. What might I do here? Well, I'll check Instagram versus maybe I'll like think about the scripture that I've memorized or, you know, it's yeah. the, the go-to place might be something. How are we numb to it? Because we just think that maybe, that he's always going to be that way. Like you know, he loves us. We, you know, we've been baptized or saved or whatever, and you know, we've already been destined to be at a certain place when we sure when we pass. So, if I don't check Instagram, I'm going to miss some of these notices. Mm -hmm. But God's always there. Yeah, God's always there. Yeah, he loves me. Good. Good. Mm -hmm. I think we miss a lot just because we're so comfortable and. It's sometimes hard to figure out the ways that we need God because we live in a world where it feels like all of our needs can be met by us. Life's pretty easy. Yeah. Yep. Chris, I sorry to interrupt you. Oh, jump into the next thing. Um, I feel like we're numb to it because Christian, a lot of times Western Christian culture is not all that close to biblical Christian <laughs> culture. And so we're numb because that's what we see everybody else doing. You know, yeah. I kind of go to church and I kind of pray sometimes and that's what a Christian is. Mm -hmm. And so that makes me numb because I think I'm just doing what all the other Christians do. We work hard to do all the right things. Mm -hmm. And God says, I don't want you to do the right things. I want your heart to be right. Mm -hmm. That's come up in a lot of the prophets, I assume, as you've gone through these prophets, you've seen that, where um, the prophets tell them, we don't care, we don't care about your sacrifices. Mm. That's not what I want. Yeah. I want your heart. I want obedience. And it's kind of this, um, um, you know, I titled this, Not First, But Only. It's not that Jesus says, I want first place in your life. He's saying, I want the only place. That's kind of hard to unpack. Well, I have to go to work, and I have these relationships, and I have, you know. So we gotta gotta digest that a little bit. What it means, not first, but only. Um, let's keep moving. These two foundational truths: God loves us passionately, number one, and secondly, following Him means we give Him everything. Again, not that He's first, but that He's only. He gets it all. He He is He is everything. Um, he doesn't want second best. He doesn't want the dregs. He doesn't want the leftovers. Um, and <clears throat> what was so scathing about Israel is they didn't even know that they were giving God the leftovers. They were clueless to it. Question? Yep. Not first, but only. How does that flush out in real life? You're working in your studio and you decide to play country western instead of Christian music, or listen to a, you know, a book on tape rather than the Bible, or we want to read Stephen King instead of thing, or watch. 
you know, bluebloods instead of a sermon. <laughs> is there ever a time where if, if God is first always? Only? I would say it this way, and this needs to be unpacked. We haven't got time in the rest of our lives to unpack that. But I think it's this way. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Yeah, I feel like it would be so different for everyone because yeah. like, we all have a different way of like enjoying ourselves and then can enjoying I read ourselves to the glory of God and then working to the glory could of I God. Could I read a Stephen King novel to the glory of God? Sure. Some of them. I'm not sure about all these. Can I watch Blue Bloods to the glory of God? I mean, they have family dinner together all the time. Of course you can. <laughs> so I think that's, when I say not first but only, obviously we have to live life. We can't go sit on a mountaintop and put on a robe and be monks. And, and see, those monks were trying to do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is, doing that is like, I think trying to do first and not only. Doing what? The uh, monk thing? Like the monk thing or like what you said. You just said we have, obviously we have to live our lives. Yeah. And I think so often we get so stuck in compartmentalizing like, well obviously we have to live our lives so God can't be first in everything. When really it's like, well obviously we have to live our lives but that doesn't mean, like we try and carpet, car, well, Compartment. compartmentalize, there it is. Yeah. That like, I have to fit God in, so I'm going to give him my best before I go and live the rest of my day. And it's like, we're That's living our life, saying. we're watching Blue Bloods, we're reading these novels, yeah. we're listening to country music, and God is like the only in all of that. He's yeah. he's, he's preeminent in all things. Yeah. Well, and Jesus, Jesus' life didn't look like that. He watched Blue Bloods. He watched Blue Bloods. <laughs> I mean, he, he, made those he went to parties. <laughs> he he hung out with some pretty yeah. fun people. Yeah. Um, he, a lot of the metaphors that I don't understand in the Bible are cultural metaphors. Or the, like even when we at Passover, he was talking about like the saying of the day was this, and so this has. The bread and the wine has this meaning because he's taking this cultural thing and redefining it or applying it or whatever. And so, you know, in some ways, I think that's Jesus using a blue blood analogy to explain. He lived in his culture, but he was a hundred percent obedient to his father. Yeah, and everything he yeah. did was to the glory of his father. Yeah. And so, to me, that's that's not making his father first. That's making his father only. Yeah. Um, and so, there should be nothing in our lives outside of the the tentacles of Jesus feeding into it. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't compartmentalize. Maybe this is secular. This is sacred. I I've, I've heard someone say like um, like the, the give the analogy of like you can't close your hand to any. Thing. Like, okay, God, I'll give you, I'll give you these things, but don't. I'm closing my hand to. You can't. And have, maybe you that's, can't have this part of my. Yeah, and maybe that's like yeah. your hardcore rap music, or maybe it's not. I don't. You know, I don't know. <laughs> or it's probably your kids, or your. You know, like it's probably something. Yeah. It's much, different for everybody. Yeah. Much better yeah. than. George Street. <laughs> I had a friend, 
I, I do think that, you know, believing in God, and I think that us as human beings, or at least I can only speak for myself, that, I mean, technically speaking, if you believe it, God has his fingerprints on everything. When you first wake up, when you go to sleep, when you have bad days, the challenges, the, vict the victories, he has his handprints on everything. Mm -hmm. To actually decipher what you're going to include him in is kind of weird to me. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? Because he has his handprints on everything. He has his handprints on you having a good time and making sure you're safe, just like he has his handprints on putting that Holy Spirit on you to get your foot off that curb. So he's in everything. Yeah. You, know, you can't pick what he's in because he's there. And like I say, we can unpack this for the next three or four years and still not plummet. But I think you're getting a little taste of it, what, what it means. She does that. She just seeds questions um, you know it's not it's not that God is first and then all these things it's the, he's only he's everything he's everything yeah all right so let's let's uh here's these two foundational truths now let's see how this kind of single-minded devotion to Jesus that first book only uh, flesh out in our family and in our money okay so if I if I'm meddling I apologize Malachi did it first so um, I'm just going to teach what he taught. Uh, first of all, God wants us to work at strong marriages that produce godly children. That's Malachi's first point. God wants us to work at strong marriages that produce godly children. And for some reason, I can't see the 18-point font in my notes in this light. So I'm going to no, no, no. I'm going to put my glasses on to read this. I've got a little light I can put on your. No, no. I just put my glasses on. I print out these huge fonts so I don't need my glasses when I preach, but this is fine. It's got a light that like flies into the room and it's like a you know, this is, this has every kind of light you can imagine. No problem. Um, chapter 2 and verse 13. This is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts of the faith from your hand. But you say, why doesn't he accept it? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So Malachi here is addressing, addressing the corruption of marriage. Um, this is a novel thing. It doesn't happen in every culture at every time. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> marriage has been corrupted since the beginning. Um, <clears throat> and it's nothing new to us in this day and age. But the situation here in 430 BC was a little bit different. Um, let me explain. Contrary to God's clear commands, these Israelites were marrying heathen, pagan wives, and husbands in some cases, who would pollute their commitment to God, and then there was no hope of having godly children. Because you have, I mean, it's like if you married, if you're a Christian and you marry a, a Muslim spouse, you know, how's that going to work for your kids? Incredibly confused. Uh, and, and, and at least in some cases, it appears that what these men would do was they would divorce their good Jewish wives and marry these exotic foreign women. They were actually getting rid of their wives. And, you know, oh, here's an Assyrian woman. Wow, she's hot and she's exotic. And I'm going to marry her. 
Um, and then these wives, these exotic foreign wives, would drag down their husbands and drag down their kids, and there would be uh, no worship of the one true God. Um, you don't need to turn there unless you want to, but I'm going to read from Nehemiah 13, which is the same time period, just to get the context here. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> That's what the Bible says. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? The point, if you are messing up your marriage, the leaders of uh, NoHo Church have biblical permission to curse you, beat you, and pull out your hair. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be on that committee. <laughs> Oh, no, I do see a bald guy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, no. There's yeah. been some issues back there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, so you see what's happening here is, is half of the children were speaking, they weren't even speaking Hebrew. They were speaking the language of their mothers or their fathers, this foreign language. They didn't understand the truth about God. They were being uh, ripped away and torn away. Um, marriages were not being unified. And so well, it was a mess. And Nehemiah went in and corrected it. Malachi is writing about it at the same time period, roughly, as Nehemiah, uh, as a prophet writing about the situation. So let me ask you this. What is the purpose of marriage? Just throw it out there. Why do you want to get married? If you are married, why did you get married? If you aren't married and want to get married, why do you want to? If you aren't married and don't want to, then don't answer the question. <laughs> so let me go back to the question. What's the purpose of marriage? Because I feel like the purpose of marriage is a very different reason than why I got married. That's fair. That's fair. Forget why you got married. It was somewhere in there, but not yeah. even close. What's the purpose of marriage? I think for our sanctification and for God's glory. Okay. Good. Good what else? It's a picture of the gospel. Okay, picture of the gospel. How so? Um, just the marriage between uh, the body and Christ. Okay. Okay. I think in partnership for the gospel. Marriage. Um, I mean, Paul in Ephesians five says that it's almost like he says the real truth is. Christ as the husband and the church as the bride, mm -hmm. and I illustrate that by human marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and so the highest meaning, and this is kind of a quote from John Piper, the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, there's no divorce. Uh, you work things out mm -hmm. because Christ never divorces his church. Mm -hmm. um, it's 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 a, and it's not about 
um, fulfilling my needs, and it's not about being happy, and it's not about finding a soulmate, and it's not about, oh, was that another phrase? Anyway. You complete me. You complete me, yes, you complete me. Which she just did. That's that's Hollywood gibberish, but I'm actually in Hollywood, so. um, So can we can we fulfill the purpose of marriage without a spouse that doesn't love Jesus? With a spouse that doesn't love Jesus? No. No. And that's what this whole I mean, all through the Old Testament, these late these prophets. Intermarriage was a common theme. It's not just Malachi, not just Nehemiah, but it shows up a lot. Uh, Solomon blew it. Um, And so over and over again, don't marry someone who's not of your faith and your persuasion. Because, and we'll get to this in a second, because you're not going to produce kids that are a godly offspring if you and your spouse are not unified in your commitment to Christ and demonstrating this covenant. Um, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, everybody knows who he is? Um, uh, No, he was a um, theologian and um, he was, Hitler hung him as a traitor like two weeks before the peace was, it was just just before the peace was declared. Apparently a day before. A day before? Very, very close. Anyway, um, uh, and, uh, but a great theologian. And he actually joined a group that was trying to overthrow Hitler. And reading his stuff on the ethics that he had to go through and think through to do this is, is amazing. Uh, but he also had an excellent perspective on community life and body life. He was part of a seminary where everybody lived together and functioned together uh, in Germany. And he never got married. But he said this. It is not your love that sustains your marriage, but from now on, the marriage that sustains your love. My paraphrase is, love doesn't keep you married. Marriage keeps you in love. Understand that? You don't, those of you that are married, are there ever days you really don't love your husband or wife? No. Or, or don't feel like you love them? Do they ever annoy you? No. No? no. Dawn, has said, Dawn has said to me more than once, I love you, but I don't like you. And it's not because we stay in love that we stay married. It's because we stay, I'm not saying this right, because we're married, we stay in love. We'll work through it, we'll fight through it. Um, we're bound by this unconditional covenant that demonstrates Christ's covenant love uh, to us, and our marriage demonstrates that to the world. And so divorce completely blows the image. I think it's like marriage just redefines the term in love. It's like you don't think of it like you did before. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll never feel that way again, like because that was such a young, naive in love, if you will, but right. like you just grow so much Absolutely. Yeah. in real love, not just like the like euphoria of the, the um, Disney love or the yeah. the, the, the yeah. Right. But 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 that's why it's so important to have the both of you be, you know, in, in Christ and have that yes. that 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 love because if you have that Christ person and then you have that worldly person, that's not 
it's not gonna work. Your, your, your kid's gonna be raised off balance, your relationship is gonna be off balance, your, your, your thought process, your problem solving is gonna be off balance because one's coming from a spiritual mind channel, one's coming from a you did this to me mindset. So there's the forgiveness aspect of it is too, is too off balance. Right. And that's exactly what Malachi is talking about here in terms of marriage, uh, divorcing your wife, marrying these exotic women, and, and what Nehemiah is doing and, and calling them on it. And um, it, it's, you, you can't do that. And of course, there's all sorts of distortions and there's all sorts of real life situations that have to be figured out and worked out, of course. Um, <clears throat> but. Um, no, it was hard enough when we got married. I was, we were both raised, came to Christ at like age four or five. So. Very all similar. We, all we knew was, yeah. was in love with Jesus and, and salvation. But. He was raised Baptist and I was raised Grace Brethren. And they're very similar. But even with that, <laughs> even with that, the clashes. The clash, mm -hmm. yeah, between mostly legalism issues. But, and that's such close. Mm -hmm. I didn't think we'd have any problems. <laughs> Spiritual anything. Okay, let's keep moving. So, <laughs> I think I'm trying to avoid that. Kind of thing. Yeah. Um, why do we have kids? What's the purpose of kids? Arrows in the quiver. So we can shoot deer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great way to impact the kingdom of God. And World around you. Okay. Say, say, explain it. Like, raising a child is probably like the biggest responsibility you could ever be given, like a, as far as like humanly. Um, and it just, and I think there, there's so much weight to that, just because you're you're actually raising someone to have like, or I mean, they're gonna have lot, probably a lot of their own thoughts that you didn't put there, but that you're like channeling and directing them in a certain way. Like from the moment they come out of you. Sure. <laughs> it's like from day one, it's like you're, it's not just like to feel all cushy and lovey, but like Good you point. have responsibility to. You don't have kids to, to satisfy some emotional hole in your heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe some people do, but then they quickly do. find a out that it's like <laughs> We've all heard stories, we know people that, yeah. that they wanted to play baseball and they never had a chance, so they have kids and they make their yeah. boys play baseball and all they want to do is arrange flowers. And these kids are completely stunted and completely, you know. Yeah. Um, the purpose of having kids is to create a godly offspring for the next generation. Mm -hmm. um, the continuation of the faith, the continuation of the gospel, the continuation of the truth of salvation has to go on to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And so we have kids and we raise them and train them to love Jesus and be a witness to the world. And that's why we do it. Um, when you were talking about the the, um, the the dark ages, that 400 years between, where nobody was knowing, nobody was really coming to God or knowing God, were were all their all their children just not was not, was it just not mentioned? Was it just there actually the, what that was in that 400 years is there was no prophetic voice. There was still a lot of belief. You've heard of the Maccabees, Judas Maccabees. That was in this 400 years. Okay. They were zealots for, for God. And, and there was truth and there was following God. Okay. 
but there was just no prophetic voice. Okay. Um, but I want to do want to read something uh, from Judges chapter two to see where Israel failed at this. Uh, uh, Judges 2.8, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. Verse 10. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So if a whole generation rose up that didn't know the Lord or his works, who failed? The parents. The parents. They did not pass on to their children the truth about God. And in a generation, there was this, there was this group of people that didn't know God. And um, when, I, when you're talking about the Dark Ages, there was 350 years in the book of Judges that were Israel's Dark Ages. Very dark period, because parents didn't tell their kids about Jesus. In a colloquial way. Um, those that study these things, like Barna and Josh McDowell and so on, tell us that 70 to 80% of teens and 20-somethings leave the church. And a very small percentage will return. Reason? He says, we're failing at discipleship. Barna and others blame, first of all, the parents for depending on the church to disciple their kids. It's not the church's job to disciple our kids. And secondly, they blame the church for not discipling teens. So the parents aren't doing it and turn it over to the church, but the church isn't doing it either. And so there's this failure of discipling and training our kids to love Jesus, what the truth is, what it is they need to do, and send them out into the world. Um, we need to raise children that are passionately sold out to Jesus. They care more about sharing the gospel than buying a house. They care more about dying to themselves for the sake of Christ and getting a good paying job or going to a good college. Um, they're willing to go to places in the world and their parents are willing to let them go to places in the world that are dangerous and need the gospel. Um, we've got to quit raising our kids to be safe and careful. But isn't there a fine line in between that? Because you have, um, I can think of three friends that I can think of right now who have walked away from Christ. They were raised in households like that. And as soon as they could make up their own minds and make their own decisions, they ran. There's and, so and many factors in that. That's a chance you got to take. It's a, well, it's a chance you got to take. I, I wouldn't put it that way, but it's, it, it's a possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most terrifying things for parents, following parents that believe in Jesus, to do is to let their kids make their faith their own. Mm -hmm. And it probably starts in the mid-teens or earlier and it goes through into their 20s and you can't tell them what to do anymore. They've got to make it their own. And if they don't, it'll never be their own and it's never genuine. Um, but, um, so we've got to, that, that's tough. And a lot of parents, what I've seen, and I don't have any idea about your situation, but parents that control their kids, rules, legalism, you will not do this. You're going to make our family look bad if you do that. And the kids conform for a while, but as soon as they get a chance, they throw off those chains and those ropes. And, and right. um, when, we, when we were, when our kids were mid to upper teens, uh, and they'd go out for the night, take the car and go, we quit saying, what, what, what do parents say to their kids when they go out? 
Um, be careful. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> this was with some instructions, so so they could contact. We quit saying that, and he said, "Okay, guys, live dangerously, take risks." <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and they understood what we meant. Of course, be careful. Don't go play in the street. Don't drive 120 miles an hour down the neighborhoods. But but we always say, "Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful." What, what message are we sending to our kids? Better, live, better be careful. Better live safe. Don't take risks. Use your better judgment. Um, people that live safe won't change the world. And that was the end of our live dangerously, take risks for the sake of the gospel. Yes, thank you, for the sake of the gospel. And they knew that was an absolute, that's the reason to take yeah. risks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's um, so cool. Now, there is a cost, parents, future parents, to raising your kids this way, because they'll take you seriously, and they might go to dangerous places. For a while, our son wanted to go to North Korea. He figured out a way he could beam the gospel into people's phones in North Korea. I lied. Um, he never did. He did backpack the world, um, and spent time in uh, Thailand, he spent time in, he worked in a, a rescue ministry in Thailand, he worked in a Christian backpacker hostel in Amsterdam, um, and now he lives in Australia. Uh, he married a girl from New Zealand, and so the cost of raising your kids that way is, you saw those twin baby grandsons that we have that we're not going to get to see very much. That's hard. But I would rather have them following Jesus, living 8,000 miles away, then right around the corner, living for the devil, and we get to see our grandkids every day. Um, that's the cost. Our daughter's married. She lives in Portland, Oregon, uh, ministers in the coffee world. Portland, Oregon, of course. Uh, she's led people to Christ through the coffee shop. She has a witness there. Um, and so that's the cost, parents. And I've talked to many parents who says, no way am I letting my kids go out and do that and go no, they've got to be right here. It's like, oh, don't, don't do that to them. Don't do that. Turn them loose. Because you're raising godly offspring to change the next generation for Christ, not to satisfy your emotional needs. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I remember the last time you came, my daughter said she really enjoyed it. <laughs> she wants you to let her go travel. <laughs> Trust the Lord and mm -hmm. hold their hands yep. open and will not have their grandchildren or on the corner and stuff like that for the sake of the gospel. Yep. And it's been such a blessing to me to have parents that hold me with an open hand. Or when I say, I'm going to Morocco for the summer to preach the gospel in a closed country, they're not like, no, that you shouldn't That's do dangerous. that. Or, yeah. and, and that I'm living in cities that where I'm from aren't deep, are like the dangerous place. Yep. It's been such a blessing to me to have parents that like don't instill fear in me yep. and the way they communicate yep. about what I'm doing. I feel so you. much freedom and they're so excited yep. for me. And so that's been such a blessing for me to have parents that have done that. Cool, that's a good testimony from the other side of it. Yeah. Um, one thing I was going to say to the thing that you were saying, Charles, is that I feel like um, 
and I see it now, even like Nell is so little, she's only one and a half, but I see that like parenthood, one of the things I'm learning is it's such a balance of like what you intentionally teach them, like with your words and your like, you know, showing them how to do things, like whether it's like new physical things or teaching them new words or Making teaching them, them how to do stuff, tea, make them tea latte. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's also the other aspect of like, I, I think it's honestly like, it, I don't know if the percentage is right here, but I feel, I feel like it's like 50% that, like what you're doing intentionally, and then like 50% just what you're doing when you don't even know your kid is watching you. So it's like exemplification more is like than so much yeah. um, yep. apparent because I already see her doing things where she gets like super frustrated with something and I'm like, what are you getting so frustrated about? Like I do that exact same thing when like something's not working. Like a perfect example is like my phone that I paid $850 for like will like all of a sudden freeze up on me. I'm like, what is wrong with my phone? And like, and Mel totally has inherited that for me. And it's like, oh, that's so hard to watch. Cause it's like, it's so convicting. To, like watch what your one and a half year old who doesn't even talk yet, like yep. picks up from you. And so, and, th and then I look at her like, why are you getting so frustrated? Like, it's all right, calm down, calm down. <laughs> I'm like, she should be saying the exact same thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel like even when they're super little, it's like so much, um, I feel like that's that's the balance. Like, I, I feel like a lot of people I know who like completely rebelled and walked away from the Lord, it was like they were in this environment where it was just like, I'm gonna tell you what to do, exactly. and I'm gonna do my own thing. And yeah. there's not that connection. Right. And the, the the ironic thing is, there's a greater chance those kids that are that are controlled will walk away from Christ mm -hmm. yeah, than those kids that are given freedom to to yeah. find their faith and to fail and to, and to fail. fail. Yeah, totally. Yep, yeah. absolutely. And get hurt, <laughs> like all those things. Because what else she's learning is not just the the picking up on your frustration yeah. and mimicking that, but she will also learn your absolute passion for the Lord. Yeah. And without even knowing it, she will fall in love with this Jesus. Mm -hmm. She doesn't even know. And then one day she'll know his name. And it'll be there. Because you've done it just living it out. Mm -hmm. Without even trying. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. You can't you yeah. can't fake yeah. your passion. It's so cool. Yeah, you better have it yourself and have it. <coughs> our kids were we we raised our kids in Alaska. And we traveled a lot, mm. and that was a value we instilled in them. They took it to an extreme, but <laughs> um, mm. but we instilled that value. I mean, when they were little, we had this book. When I grow up, I can go anywhere for Jesus, and it was about being missionaries in any place in the land. And we just bought a copy and had it, sent it to Australia mm -hmm. for our kids to read to our grandkids now and, and get them the same same vision. Mm. I think the perspective from growing up in a non-believer. Uh, household like I did, but still having an open hand policy as far as letting me go out and experience even things that she may not have believed in, right, right. and not judging me or making me feel. But go, 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 go. See for yourself. Go if it makes you feel. But even you have some non-believers, but if they have that type of attitude, that can that non-believers can also be people who want to ridicule you and. You think that, oh, just because you believe in Jesus right now, you think you're better than everybody else. Like, you know, they can have that attitude, too. But my mom was always just like, okay, if this is what you want to do, you, you, you know, I support you. I, I don't necessarily understand it, but if it's, it's good, then, yeah. then, you know, you're not going to end up on the news. It's, it's go. <laughs> you know, so. The news or the post office board. Yeah, you know, you're not going to end up on the back of a milk yeah. carton. Yeah. Do what you want to, you know. <laughs> 
Good. What's our time frame? Um, I don't think anybody's going to complain, but um, pro we usually are done by 8.45ish, which is about 10 minutes. Okay. Um, right. So, so it, we'll cover all the money stuff in 10 minutes, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so this is Malachi's message about family and kids and godly offspring and so on. Um, the second issue he, he addresses with these two foundational truths, that God loves us and that it's Jesus only, not just Jesus first, is he wants us to use our money to advance the kingdom. Um, no surprise here, Israel hide it all wrong. Uh, they handled their money the same way the world did. There was no distinction. Remember remember verse or chapter 3 um, and verse 18, which is kind of our key verse. What's the distinction between the righteous and the wicked? If we as believers handle our money the same way the world does, there's no distinction. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, look at chapter 3 and verse 8. Um, God accuses Israel of robbing him. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? See their cluelessness again? We don't know how we, what do you mean? What are you saying? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. You are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Um, now I'm not going to get into a lot of all this because of time. But tithe is simply a Hebrew word that means a tenth. Um, and how many of you grew up in church where tithing was a thing? All right. Half, more or less. Um, theory. Theory, yeah. It was a thing. <laughs> so that's um, we're not robbing God when we don't give him 10%. Did that come out right? Yeah. It's not about, you know, if you don't give 10%, you're robbing God. That's not what uh, Malachi is teaching here. We're robbing God when we think that what we have is ours. And we use it for ourselves instead of understanding that everything we have is God's. And he asks us to take those resources that, he, that he's given us and use them for the advancing of the kingdom. Uh, he owns it all. Uh, your money, your house, your job, your car, your 401k, if you have one of those things, your um, whatever. He can blow it all away with a puff. Uh, remember the recession about 10 years ago? Anybody remember that? Uh, I don't remember the details, but it was like in a couple days, trillions of dollars of wealth just disappeared. Which boggles my mind of any economist. Uh, and so God can, you know, tomorrow the stock market can crash, the economy can tank, and all of our wealth and all of the money we think we've saved and hoarded can be, would be gone. Um, we actually lost what little we had, we lost it all in the recession. And like, okay, well, we start over. And God's in control of that. It's his anyway. He gave us some. We lost it all. Okay, we move on. Um, so... Uh, are we robbing God by thinking that what we have is ours? Or are we using it for him? Uh, verse 10 says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, there may be food in my house. Now in the Old Testament, there was this, there was basically the people were to bring 22.5%, if I understand it right, of their income into the temple, so the temple system could be supported, and it was also their welfare system. There was no national tax. Uh, they brought in 22.5%, which was a tithe, a tithe, and a quarter of a tithe, um, to the temple. And that took care of the poor and the needy and the priests and all that kind of stuff. And so that's the storehouse. The storehouse was in the temple. Bring your money into the storehouse to the temple to provide the needs. I grew up in a church 
with a teaching called storehouse tithing. Anybody heard that term before? Storehouse tithing. Oh. Uh, it was Baptist. <laughs> Probably Lutherans do it too. Uh, the idea was that, you're, that you should give 10% to the church. The church is the storehouse. Now, the church is not comparable to the temple because the temple also took care of the needy and the poor. We have welfare systems today to take care of that. We have hospitals. So it's a little different. And everybody talks about Old Testament teaching on tithe. Well, if we're going to do that, it's 22.5%. It's not 10%. So, you know, the point is, this isn't a law. This is a principle. I don't think giving 10% of your income to the church is a New Testament law. I believe that what Paul is teaching in, over in 2 Corinthians is to give generously, whatever that means. Um, but giving is a good principle. Um, Jared did not ask me to say this, so <laughs> yell at me. Um, as members of NoHo Church, this is your storehouse. This is your church. This is your body. There's financial needs here. Um, I don't know what it costs to operate this place. I don't care. It's not my business. Uh, and I know you get outside funding that comes into it, but still, there's it, it takes money to operate this family, this group of people, this ministry. Um, and so th there's ways to contribute that Jared can explain later. Um, I, maybe you guys already know how that works here. Um, in, at Cornerstone and Simi, we pass an offering plate every Sunday. I don't think you guys do that. But um, there's other ways to do it. We're starting tonight. <laughs> um, but the, the larger principle is to realize that what we have is not really ours, it's God's. And we should use some of that to support God's work. And this local body is the first place to start. Personally, we give the bulk of our giving to Cornerstone Church. We also support a handful of missionaries and other things around. That's just how God's impressed it on us. Uh, you, and, you and God decide what to do. Uh, but in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, Paul has the principle that I think is for us. He says this, The point is that whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So Malachi is teaching, don't rob God thinking that what you have is yours. Paul's teaching, you give a tiny bit, you're going to get a tiny bit back. That doesn't mean if you give a lot, you're going to get wealthy. It just means blessing will come your way. Um, and so that's, that's the principle he's talking about. Um, John MacArthur, I mean, John Piper, why did I say MacArthur? Um, said this, tithing is a contemporary middle-class American way of robbing God. <laughs> What's he mean? Mm. You get too little. 10% mm. is way too little. Um, for, and I don't know any of your financial situations, and I don't care either, but for some people, giving 10% is way too low. That's robbing God. R.G. Letourneau, anybody know the name R.G. Letourneau? Started Letourneau College, a technical Christian school in Texas. Yes. Letourneau College? I know Letourneau College, yeah. Okay, R.G. Letourneau was a millionaire in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. He built machines that built the highways that made America. 
Oh, he's a millionaire. And he gave away 90% of his income. And he was a millionaire on his 10%. Most of us can't do that. But he gave 90% away and kept 10%. Um, it would have been robbing God for him to give only 10%. So everybody's got to figure out how they need to do it. So questions on that? I know money's a touchy subject, but I don't mind talking about touchy subjects. Um, thoughts, questions, you understand kind of what Malachi is doing here with this robbing God thing? I have a question. Um, sometimes it can be really hard because as you're trying to establish yourself early on, kind of the early stages of adulthood, it's a little bit difficult to like look at what everybody else is doing and just not, it's very easy to just kind of be like, oh, okay, well, everybody else is going for those things, so I guess that's just the way things go. So I guess that's how I need to set up my finances or plan for the future or whatever. As in the world. Yeah, or, or even in Christian circles. Okay, sure, sure. So, um, what, and maybe that's not enough time to kind of dig into that, but in, maybe in your experience, in how you guys worked through that as young adults, what were some of the goals and what were some of the ways in which you, the expectations or the plans that you guys had put together to, I mean, it's like, God prospers Christians sometimes, and God makes Christians wealthy and all that. So and sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes he doesn't. So what, um, just kind of like, practically speaking, how did you guys decide all of that? That just kind of come with every stage. We made a commitment very early on in marriage that we would give at least 10% of our income in church. And uh, there were seasons when we couldn't, or, you know, it's like give 10% to the church or lose our home. Um, it never was quite that drastic. And I know there's people that say, oh, just give your 10% and God will, you know, and I get that. But just practically speaking, because we're less than sometimes perfect people. Sometimes you would and sometimes we didn't. Yeah. But we, we, we have done that our whole married lives basically consistently. Um, and, you know, I look at that amount of money that goes out. I don't really look at it that way anymore, but if I have in the past, like, man, that's a, that's a mm -hmm. really nice car payment. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a really nice vacation and a, you know, a few <laughs> months of that, and we could go to Hawaii or something. Mm -hmm. And I just believe that's what we need to do with what we have. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it comes back to the key verse that we're talking about tonight. Once more, you'll see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Um, yeah, we could live a little better lifestyle if we didn't give that money away. But there's also a principle that we, I, I'm not going into it here, but if you keep reading Malachi, where um, basically he says, okay, then I'm gonna read it. It is here, I just skipped over it. Um, in, uh, I guess it's 2.10. Maybe 3.10. 3.10. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, 
so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field will not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Um, and so on. So what he's saying is, I can prosper you or I can unprosper you. Um, I have no idea if we had not given 10% of our income consistently that maybe our car would have blown up and we would have had to spend $10,000 or $5,000 or whatever on a new car. Um, God may have protected our car from doing that. So we actually were ahead financially and just never knew it. Or, you know, our teeth could have fallen apart worse than they are falling apart. <laughs> and, you know, dentist bills like crazy. Um, so, you know, to say I can't afford to, well, maybe you can't afford not to. There's, there's no equation here. There's no formula like you give God this much, he'll give you this much. There's none of that. Uh, but there's a principle. I think also in that, like, the value of the, the storehouse and being a part of a body, it does operate in that way. One month, one month we did have dental bills that were outrageous, and it was, like, more financially than we could handle that month. And we had someone gift us in this body a large sum of money and so I think it's not only trusting the Lord but trusting the body he's giving yeah. you like we're not going to let anyone in this church go homeless right. like we're not going to let you go without food, you know and so I think like give because it will you will be provided for mm -hmm. either by more work and the Lord doing that or by this body you know and I think that's Israel. That's been such a blessing for us. Yeah, the Old Testament talks about how Israel's, um, they, for 40 years they wandered the wilderness and their sandals did not wear out. Yeah. And we've seen stones from the wilderness of Paran and they're like flint. It's sharp. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, God can make your tires last another 30,000 miles. <laughs> he can, I mean, he can do things that we don't even realize he's doing uh, to bless us. And as we bless others, we've been on the receiving end of that kind of gift. We've been able to give that kind of gift. And you're probably receiving some of the money back that you gave into it at times. Well, I get a salary from the church. I put some money, I put far less into my salary because I don't hide my whole salary. Um, yeah, see, of course, but I don't even think about that. That's, that's not even in my head. It's like I am giving to this local body that I'm a part of. And when I look at the whole budget, I think, man, what we give doesn't even, and it's not about the it's not about a balance sheet. It's about obedience. Mm -hmm. It's it's us giving what God has given us back to his work. I don't care that it is a drop in the bucket. That doesn't matter. It's not the point. It's not a business. It's, it's an organic. I, I think sometimes that the, that, the, that the tithing, though, has been, I mean, I've chosen not, I mean, has been manipulated. Oh, absolutely. At, 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 at certain points. Um, the, Mixing with the reaping and sowing, a lot of people have mixed it with that. You know, you put more money into pot, you're gonna get, you know, just no, like that. Right, right, like, right. That is just so like, it, so you have that person that's going, you know, I really love Christ, so I have thousand dollars here. I, I really want the, the return of that. And I think that I think when you mix those two together and you don't, for me, I just choose. A lot of people will, okay, I gave three hundred dollars to my minister. And it, why is he driving up in a nice Cadillac and he had a Nova last week? Like, when you start thinking about what they're doing with it, which people do, yep. like, we automatically, faith or not, like, we just like, man, that's a nice suit. 
and he was wearing a Kmart special six months ago. Church must be doing good. So when you start thinking of it like that, it's it's the natural instinct is yeah, you want to help, but and and and, and this is uh, we do this when we start justifying what people are actually doing with the money, which well, I would say this: if if you can't trust the church to handle properly the money you're giving, you need to leave that church. Exactly. You, you need to be at a place where you you trust your leadership to handle the money well. Right. And then it's and then it's not you're giving the money to the church, you're giving the money to God. Exactly. And that's the vehicle for it. And right. if, if you see your pastor driving a new BMW every other week, maybe you need to switch churches. Exactly. I, don't, I don't know. And then they get maybe some wealthy guy in the church bought him Could a be. BMW. But if that tide plate comes around four times in an hour and a half service. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the old caricature. There's not enough money. Pass the plate to yeah. No, no. That's, 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 I want to speak against that. That's one of the cool things about being a part of a body where you're known and like you you can ask Jared and Mary Beth how they spend their money. And I'm like, we have, have had conversations where, you know, like Jared and Mary Beth both have part-time jobs. Like they they have thought about their, their money and the way it's used and are almost too much sometimes. Where I'm like, our church has the money, just just use it. Like that's what it's for. Um, and so that's that's one thing that I think is a very American, like the way we think about money is very American. Like the concept of a of a salary pastor. I don't like Jesus. Like I'm. I don't know. There's that's that's weird. Um, it's weird for a pastor to get a salary. No, I mean just like okay. that's not what he's talking. That's not what it's talking yeah. about in yeah. the. That's not the, the yeah. world that they were living in. Right. Um, and and. Yeah, so I think it's, I do think it's cool to like, I, the money that we give, I'm, I'm like overcome, like, I feel like I'm more like, spend more, like, <laughs> loosely than, than, like, pamper me. No. Not, not me, but that's, that goes to a second point of like, of like, we think of, we think of the benefit as what is coming back on us. And like, Keely and I have been, we sponsor a kid in Africa and like, it's costs so little and he, you know, he's writing us notes about how he loves the Lord and, and um, I'm, you know, it's, that never comes back to me, and that's not the. That's not the point. Like I'm, I'm contributing to God's economy, and I think the way I like how much I spend on, how much we choose to spend on our rent, is contributing to God's economy. And like the cars that we drive, are we make those choices to contribute to God's economy. And it's not about like so that I can get a nicer car right. later, or or so that I can like man, manipulate things to get what's best for me. That's what everybody else is doing. Um, but I do think something I've been challenged by is the, just the verse where you're 
where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think your money shows what you actually value as well as where you, like when you give your money, you're, invest, you're, you're invested, like you care more, you know? Um, my mom used to do like photography stuff and she never got a thank you note from anyone that she did free photos from. But she always got a thank you note from people that she charged like twenty dollars for their for their senior portraits or whatever. Like the huh. the, the payment gives you a buy-in to An like, investment to it. actually be yeah. involved here. And like when you're when you're, I think one of the reasons we know where the money goes is because it part of it's our money, and we want to know what the church is doing with it. And um, and so it gives you a buy-in to not be like, well, I'm going to go to church, and I hope the music's good, and I hope that this is good, and that's partly why we do potluck on Sundays, it's like, there should be a buy-in yep. so that you can, so that you can be a part of what's going on. Yeah. And understand, God doesn't need our money, yeah. Yeah. okay? It's about us, not about him. He can, he can fund anything and everything he wants to any way he wants to. It's about our, it's a reflection of our hearts. It's a reflection, and again, back to our key verse, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who's not serving. Is it reflected in our marriage? Is it reflected in our parenting? Is it reflected in our marriage? Is it reflected in every area of our lives? Not Jesus first, but Jesus only. Is every area of our life, is there a distinction between us and how the wicked live their lives? That's the key, and I think you're going to talk more. So, uh, with that, we'll close. We're way out of time. Um, I just want to say this. This is the last, this is God's last prophet before he closes down for 400 years. What if this were the last time tonight that you heard God speak? I don't have any answers or direction for that. Just, I'm going to close in prayer. Just think about this. What if what God said to you tonight was the last thing you ever heard him say? What would you do? Lord, thank you for our time. Thank you for Malachi. Kind of an obscure Old Testament prophet, but man, such relevant truth for how we live today and situations and family and money. And, and I just pray that we would think through um, how we live our lives. Is it different from how the world lives their lives? And if not, what do we need to change? And if this were the last thing you said to us, if this is the last word we heard from you, how would we go out tomorrow and live our lives differently? How would your word affect the rest of our lives? Um, I pray that you would transform and change us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.